Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, John Farman, and I'm Hazel Burton. Welcome back. Today on this show, we are going to do a film buff or film bluff quiz. We're also going to be doing new recommendations for you. So let's start the show. This is our first record after Christmas. Did everyone have a nice Christmas? Very nice. Noise. Mm. I don't know why that Very came nice, out. Very nice, Mary Poppins. <laughs> Have you seen that yet? Yeah, I went to see it on Boxing Day. Oh. Very good Christmassy sort of film. Just two hours of escaping the real world into a brightly coloured, happy, joyful mm-hmm. place where nothing goes wrong. So did it feel like a continuation of the same story? There's quite a big time jump. It's about 30 years difference or so Mm. between the original and this one. But we watched the original on TV on Christmas Eve, so it was quite fresh in my mind. I think continuation's probably the right word. It didn't feel like a sequel. It didn't feel like a Mm. reboot. Mm. It took the story and carried it on, but you could quite easily watch them separately from each other. And how much did you salivate over Lin-Manuel Miranda? Oh, he's very good, isn't it? Is he? <laughs> he is. I'm looking yeah. forward to uh, Mary Poppins Forever next year, and then Mary Poppins and Robin two years after that. <laughs> <laughs> is that where they go day glow? Yes. <laughs> Mary Poppins with a suit with nipples on. <laughs> oh, no. She has a Robin on her hand in the ah. original when she does a spoonful of sugar, doesn't she? She does, yes. She does. Yeah. Foreshadowing. So that's been done. They, they uh, do a duet together, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Did anyone get any nice nerdy Christmas gifts? I got an excellent nerdy Christmas gift. I'm going to pass it to Dan and we'll see if Dan can recognise where this gift is from. What we have here is a key ring for the Overlook Hotel Sidewinder CO room 237, which is clearly a reference to Ready Player One. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct, yes. That is my shining hotel room key fob. And I'm looking forward to visiting that room later and finding a sexy naked lady who will turn into an old crone. You're not falling for that one again, are you? No. (laughs) That's my first marriage. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I'm wearing one of my presents, which is uh, a Marvel. (laughs) (laughs) Which are Marvel socks. They're so realistic, I can't even tell who it is from where I'm... It's Iron Man. It's Iron Man, yeah. Okay. Iron Man holding a football. So basically, you just look like you're wearing strange grey splodges on your ankles for anyone else who can't see the entire sock when you're wearing shoes. So you know that you're wearing Iron Man socks, so that's all that matters. It's my little secret. (laughs) And uh, speaking of Iron Man, I received tickets to go and see the Avengers Station at the Excel Centre in London at the start of February, which is a big Star Wars identities-like interactive exhibition about the first 10 years of the MCU. Yeah. So we'll be heading down to that at the start of Feb. Why is it called Station? Uh, I think it's Station in the same way that Shield is not actually the word Shield, but stands for many different words. Oh, right, I okay. can't remember what so Station it's not some stands sort of for. Bill and Ted reference. Station. Sadly not. If they turn up though, <laughs> ten out of ten. <laughs> You'd have thought they're done in Waverley Station in Edinburgh. That would be good. Which Platform was in two. the last movie. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I see it every morning. <laughs> Step out of the shadows like Captain America to catch my commuter to service. Yep. Yep. I got a couple of nerdy gifts. My boyfriend got me a poster full of my shameful gaps. 
It's a kind of a hundred movies to see before you die bucket list and you scratch them off as mm. you've seen them. How many of the hundred yeah. have you seen? There's quite a few gaps on there. We were in the pub last night and I was astonished that you have never seen Gremlins. <sighs> That'll be on there. Wow. But, you know, now I have a medium in which to celebrate the eradication of my shameful gaps. What happens when you've seen all hundred films? You die. Uh, <laughs> yeah, before you die and then, mm, yeah, then you yeah. die. Does it have Scott Pilgrim? Does it have The Frighteners? I should have really looked at it before I came on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> have you still not seen Scott Pilgrim? No. no. Okay, how many Somebody years Somebody lent now? it to me um, about four years ago on DVD and I can't remember who. That's probably someone I don't like very much. I, I used to have a copy of Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> what happened to it? I, I lent it to someone I don't like very much. <laughs> <laughs> One of our friends moved house just before Christmas and we got a big bag full of Blu-rays and books that we forgot that we had, that we'd lent them over the course of the <laughs> however many years. And when they moved house, they'd found them all, they returned them, so that was nice. Wow. Mm-hmm. And any gems? Uh, Blade Runner Blu-ray, mm-hmm. uh, the original, mm-hmm. and uh, some books that I don't even remember buying. I've had that with Ian a few times. It gets to that stage where you can't give it back and still admit you haven't watched yeah. it in the amount of time you've had it. Speaking of which, Senna looks quite good, Dan. Oh, yeah. Which I still have of yours. Yes, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, how is Across the Universe, Hazel? What? What? Hey. That Julie Taymor film about the Beatles oh. that I lent you about a year ago. It wasn't a year ago, it was six months ago. All right, okay. Which is nothing compared to... Have you watched to... that before <laughs> Scott Pilgrim? I have not <laughs> Do it. <laughs> yeah. So you said you got a couple of nerdy presents then? Yeah, I also got... Helen O'Hara's book about the greatest movies from the 80s, which is Mm -hmm. awesome. She's a very good writer. She is. She works for Empire Magazine and is excellent. And she also points out a lot of the things about 80s movies is they're very macho and not representative of the world we have today. So um, she points out a couple of those things as well. The 80s was probably my favourite decade of movies, but Mm -hmm. you know, watching them in today's context, you would probably have a problem with a plot point or two. Mm-hmm. So she does cover that, but she also celebrates when movies dare to have the plot that they did have in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I think everyone's quite politically aware and more, um, you know, you don't make fun of terrorists anymore, essentially, after, <laughs> after 9-11. Isn't that why James Cameron dropped the True Lies sequel? I believe so, yeah. yeah. It was in the works, he said, after 9-11, I don't want to make a comedy about terrorists. Yeah, mm. but it's a great book. I really recommend it. And I also got the Hufflepuff scarf that should keep me very warm in this winter. Which colours are those? Um, mustard yellow. All right. I can <laughs> demonstrate by showing you my new Christmas socks, which are Hufflepuff themed. <laughs> are you also Hufflepuff? Puff, oh, Hufflepuff? Uh, they actually say Hufflepuff along the bottom in case you can't tell. And, and the, the badger the symbol, yeah. We'll take a photograph and tweet it or yes. something. The house represents friendship and loyalty above all else. I believe it does. Yes. In fact, John's microphone is Hufflepuff yellow today. Mm-hmm. Oh, because I'm clearly Ravenclaw. Have you guys done Slytherin. the Pottermore quiz Slytherin. to find out? Yes. Are you, okay. Are you Slytherin? Yes. <laughs> Have we done what? The Pottermore quiz that tells you which house you're in. Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, you should. Oh, right. oh, next podcast, let us know which house you're in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Would you like to guess? Probably Ravenclaw. I was going to say Ravenclaw. I would say yeah. Slytherin. <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> So now it's time for Film Buff or Film Bluff. And in this quiz, we've all got three pieces of entertainment trivia, but one of them is completely made up. So we have got to try and guess which one is the bluff. Who'd like to go first, Dan? Because 
2019 is the 20th anniversary of The Phantom Menace being released. Ooh. I know. I know. Thank it's you. also the 20th anniversary of anybody watching The Phantom Menace. <laughs> I went to the 3D re-release. <laughs> I did. How old are you? Old when enough to know like better. Two, 2013, that would have been. They scrapped, yeah. did, they, <laughs> did they scrap the other 3D re-releases? Yes. If they were going to do them all, and then Disney bought Lucasfilm, so we only got The Phantom Menace. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Podrace looked really good yeah. converted into 3D, actually. So, yeah, to celebrate the 20th anniversary... These are three facts about Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> Number one. After the Battle of Endor, Jar Jar was banished for collusion with the Empire and ended up as a struggling street performer. Number two. The belief that Jar Jar was actually a Sith Lord has been made official Star Wars canon. And three. An alternate name for the Phantom Menace was Jar Jar's Great Adventure. Are these a canon from the books? Is that what you're saying? Or uh, all of these are official Star Wars canon currently? From currently. If true, encyclopedias and things. Uh, yes, yeah. this is not including old expanded universe. Yeah. This is current canon. Current canon. Okay. Yeah. So it was Jar Jar's adventure. Was that like a code name for the film, or is that what people called it when they didn't want to refer to Star Wars? It was a name that it could have been. Really, like Star Wars Episode One, Jar Jar's adventure. Correct. Holy shit. Okay. <laughs> I can see that. I mean, my initial reaction is that that's a load of bullshit, but... He does have form. George Lucas always said that Star Wars was told from the point of view of the droids, so far 2 t 2 and C-3PO. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine him saying, yeah. well, actually, this is a story being told from Jar Jar's point of view, and therefore it's Jar Jar's mediocre adventure. <laughs> Star Wars Episode Four was called, was it The Adventures of Luke Starkiller? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it could be something in that. The Battle of Endor, as in with the Ewoks. He wasn't at the Battle of Endor, but following the defeat of the Empire. After yeah. the Battle of Endor happened, he was banished for colluding with the Empire. Oh. Okay. From his people. And At what point did he collude with the Empire? Or is this behind the scenes? It depends whether you believe he was falsely accused or not. Uh... He did give the order to give Supreme Chancellor Palpatine executive powers that led to the creation yes. of the Empire. I've forgotten how much fun the early Star Wars films were. <laughs> Don't you remember that thrilling uh, parliamentary briefing where he proposed yes. the motion? Yes. And it was seconded and then thirded and... Yes, um, I do actually. <laughs> God. Then there was a vote of no confidence, 48 letters were sent in. We <laughs> <laughs> do a Brexit. <laughs> the two seem to tie in though, so if he's a Sith Lord... He would have colluded with the Empire and been banished. These two facts could be part of the same narrative. Yeah, so to explain that one further, there's always been this fan theory mm-hmm. that Jar Jar was secretly controlling yeah. things on behalf of the Sith. And that has, since the Disney purchase, been turned into canon. Yeah, so it could be that, or it could be he was he did something incredibly stupid which accidentally helped the Empire. Yes. Which I think I believe more. Mm. But I can't believe it was ever going to be called Jar Jar's Great Adventure. I don't know. So there's something oh, yeah. ringing some sort of tiny, tiny bell. At least we'd have known before we went in that it'd be shit, though, wouldn't we, with that title? I mean, there was enough outcry when it was called The Phantom Menace. Mm. I'm going to go with Jar Jar's Great Adventure being a lie. I'm going to go with the Sith Lord. I'm going to go Jar Jar's Great Adventure. Peter and John are correct. So uh, Jar Jar's Great Adventure was never a name for the Phantom Menace, but George Lucas did call the first draft of Attack of the Clones Jar Jar's Great Adventure as a joke in response to all the criticism <laughs> about the Phantom Menace. Right. Um, 
The belief that Jar Jar was actually a Sith Lord has been made canon. There was a novel called Legends of Luke Skywalker, which talked about how some people in the galaxy don't just believe that Jar Jar was a Sith Lord, but that he and Darth Vader were the same person. (laughs) Um, And yeah, in canon, after the Battle of Endor, he was suspected of colluding with the Empire and was cast out and became a struggling juggler on the streets of Naboo. Living in poverty. Poor Jar Jar. Poor Jar Jar. Did he die alone? How would? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I've got three unrelated facts, and you've got to work out which one is not true. In the early 1980s, AT&T asked a research company to estimate how many cell phones would be in use in the world at the turn of the century. They decided the total market would be about 900,000. And as a result, AT&T pulled out of the market. In fact, by 2000, there were 738 million people with cell phone subscriptions. Mm -hmm. The second one, Intervision, the 70s Soviet answer to the Eurovision Song Contest, was judged by electricity grid voting. Those watching at home had to turn their lights on when they liked a song and off when they didn't, with data from the electricity network being used to allocate points. And for the third one, a dark spot on Pluto's moon, Sharon, Charon, Charon, Sharon. Sharon. I always call it Sharon because I think it's funny. It's called Dark Place, which was named after a British comedy series. So, Intervision must have been on the radio rather than the television then, for it to not run on electricity. <laughs> well, it's just, it, just lights. No. Well, yeah. firstly, Can radios do run on electricity. No, it's, it was TV, and this was just rather than everyone call in on the phone, they would jiggle the light switch. Yeah to express yeah. their liking this or not is, liking. This is just me misunderstanding basic science. So yeah. after a song was performed, they would turn the lights off if they liked it and just leave them on if they didn't. Don't know which way around, but mm. let's, let's the drop say that. surge in power yeah. accordingly. Oh, I see. That makes sense. Didn't there used to be a surge in the breaking combination suit as people put the kettles on? Mm. They did. Yeah. The Russians are really going to great lengths to have competitions that can't be hacked. But if you own a power plant, then, uh, you know, obviously you could turn your factory on and off to vote for the song you like. And you could be contributing to who wins the contest, even if you weren't watching or paying attention to it. Yeah. And if you just happened to go to bed early that night. Hmm. Hmm. I believe that. I believe it because it's ludicrous. Yeah. It's a a sensible idea to a problem as to how to vote for something in the 70s. Because they didn't have telephones. Well, I don't think they had phone lines. I don't, I don't think they had automatic, automated telephone systems, would yeah. they? Well, Eurovision was just done by the judges at that yeah. point. And maybe not everyone had phone lines in 1970s Russia. You had to queue up for five days to get a bottle of vodka, didn't you, sir? <laughs> I, believe, I, believe I, I believe that one. AT&T giving up on a massive mobile opportunity. So to recap, they estimated less than a million. Yeah. And in fact, there were 738 million by then. What year was it? 2000. 2000. They were estimating about 20 years previous to that. I had a mobile phone in 2000, but I don't remember everybody else having them. I had a mobile phone in 2000. That's the year I got it. Mm, I had one in the early 90s, I think. Was it one that looked like uh, Zach from Saved by the Bell? No, it was like the ones that had in the X-Files. You had a phone that looked like Zach <laughs> yeah. from Saved by the I, Bell. I did just, mm. uh, yeah, listen to that sentence again in my head. <laughs> <laughs> to you, Zach and Kelly, forever. Yes, yeah. yeah. Did you have a mobile phone in the early 90s, but you had to find a phone socket to plug it into? If I was just a phone, you carried around with you? 
No. No. <laughs> mobile phones, I think they became incredibly popular because of how Neo used it in The Matrix, and that came out in 99, I think. Yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah, the kind of flip. I don't think, I don't think they suddenly sold 740 million of them no. as a result of that movie. Yeah. Well, Do you know who made the first phone call in the UK? The Queen. It was Ernie Wise. Oh. And Wise. The first phone call. So the first mobile phone call. No. I thought the Queen sent the first text message. Did I make that up? <laughs> no. Nope. I made that up. <laughs> and the moon thing is bullshit. Yeah. I've decided. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was Pluto. That's not a moon. Well, that's no moon. <laughs> it's not a planet either. <laughs> it was a dark spot on Pluto's moon, Charon or Charon or whatever it's called. It's called Dark Place. There probably is a spot called a Dark Place, but I don't believe it's named after the Garth Mavenga TV show. Okay. Everyone yep. picked that? Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're right. <laughs> In fact, it's called Mordor. Oh. Yeah. Pre or post-Tolkien? It was named after the Tolkien. Can you imagine if Frodo had had to walk all the way to the moon of Pluto? <laughs> It'd still be shorter than yeah. Return of the King. Poor Pluto. If Pluto's a dog, what's Goofy? Also a dog, I think. But would Goofy have had a dog? Was Pluto Goofy's dog? No, Pluto, Pluto was, was Mickey Mouse's dog. So Pluto is treated as a slave by Mickey Mouse and yet treats Goofy as an equal. <laughs> yes. Which means basically that He's Pluto... also friends with a talking duck, so I yeah. don't think we could Pluto is Mickey Mouse's slave. God, Disney's dark. Anyway. I'm going anyway. down a, <laughs> a cul-de-sac here. <laughs> so as mentioned earlier, I have quite a lot of shameful gaps. On top of the list, and unfortunately we are going to watch it first, is a film called I Know How Many Runs You Scored Last Summer, which is a horror cricket film. <laughs> I'll read out a brief synopsis. In an Australian summer, a young cricketer is hospitalised by his bullying teammates. 20 years later, he returns to wreak his bloody revenge. One by one, in the remote Australian outback, the team members are dismissed by the mustachioed serial killer with a razor-sharp cricket glove and an arsenal of sharpened stumps. Bluff. <laughs> This is a real film. So I have made up the plot of one sport horror film. The other two actually exist. Okay. The first one is called A Nightmare on Ellen Road. The Leeds United football manager is brutally murdered by a former player who is desperate to set his revenge on all those who played a part in dropping him from the team, which led to his parents' suicide. He then takes on his actual identity to destroy the club in more ways than one. Okay. Okay. Second one, Apocalypse. The main character called Jonesy and he and his recently crowned champion hockey teammates are attacked by zombies after the match. Their objective is to run through town without being eaten by the zombies, which includes a group of Mad Max Fury Road cosplay players. And the third <laughs> one is called Fatal Games. And this is the actual IMD plotline. A mad javelin thrower kills teenagers in a school. All the promising athletes are executed in the most brutal way, especially naked girls in dressing rooms or saunas. Which one of those plots did I make up? Now, if a nightmare in Ellen Road exists, it must just be a fan film or an amateur film because... That's kind of what all of those sound. Mm. Yeah. I mean, not yeah. to disparage the filmmakers at all, if they're actually cinematically released films. Yeah. But they well, all... So the, the cricket film, for example, stars Miss Nude Australia. These are not proper films. But it's been released, though. 
They've been released, yeah. Because I think I would know the Edland Road one if it had any sort of... Sounded like the plotline of a series of Dream Team. Yes. Mm. Leeds United is my football team. Mm-hmm. So I'd be amazed if I hadn't heard of it. Is that still their stadium? Yes, yeah. yeah. But I just wonder whether it's some very obscure YouTube film that Hazel has dug out, knowing that I'm a Leeds fan to attempt to entrap me in some way. It's a double bluff. <laughs> yeah. the, the second one, zombie film, I could see that being done Apocalypse. on a super low budget. Mm. The third one... Hazel mentioned that it had an actual IMDb entry, oh, which she didn't two. for the other two. So, oh, sorry, they they all they, these are genuinely all of the IMDb. Um, oh, okay, apart from allegedly, the one that isn't. apart from yeah. the one that isn't, yeah. I'm gonna trust John's judgment, and I'm gonna go with the Leeds United one as being the bluff. Yeah, I've never heard of any of them. The only one I would have had a chance of hearing about is the Ellen Road one, and I haven't. And it can't be any more horrifying than what's happened to us for the last 14 seasons anyway. <laughs> Although currently, as we stand, we are 31 minutes into the game and Lee's are losing 1-0 to Hull City, so it's Woo-hoo! all going wrong again. Hull's my team. Oh, <laughs> <clears throat> well, I'm going to use the logic that Hazel would never have picked a movie that you should have known if it didn't exist. Yeah. Because so she'd it- have known you'd have known it didn't exist. <laughs> Therefore... It does exist. Well, yeah, that, that's the logic I'm going to go for, so I'm going to pick the third one. Uh, you're going to pick Fatal Games, which is about the javelin thrower? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that was a logic I thought you used, so I triple bluffed you. <laughs> 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 Nightmare on Elm Road does not exist, because like, John is going to know these other two films, so how do I make mm. him not know that this one is real? I'll put something in there so that he thinks it's real because of Ellen Road. <laughs> But actually, um, A Nightmare on Ellen Road does exist in the form of a silent disco in 2016, which I don't know if you went to. I did not no. go to that, no. One of the things that I've been listening to a lot recently is they finally released on DVD and CD David Bowie's performance at Glassman in 2000, which is recognised as sort of one of the greatest Glassman sets of all time. Now, David Bowie musically was a genius. He also appeared in quite a lot of films. Some of his film roles and cameos are better known than others. He seemed to just do anything that he thought would be fun, regardless of its quality. I think if somebody he knew was involved in it, he would do it as a favour. So here are three David Bowie cameo roles, two of which are real, one of which is made up. David Bowie appeared in an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants as Atlantis Squarepantus, <laughs> the king of the underground city of Atlantis. Number two, David Bowie appeared in the 1977 film Yellowbeard, which was a post-Monty Python project by Graham Chapman, in which he appears as somebody who alternates between torturing people and providing sexual favours to his boss. The film also features Cheech and Chong and was an unmitigated disaster. But did David Bowie appear in that? And finally, David Bowie provided the singing voice of Zac Efron in one song in the first high school musical film. That sounds so impossible. But again, you start to question reality. Mm. Well, not all the songs. It was just one song. I I can't remember the name of it. I can find it if you like. How convenient. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to find it? Yes. Yeah, okay. John is, now, John is now pretending to look it up on IMDb. So the Spongebob role must have been in one of the Spongebob movies. He definitely was in something to do with Spongebob. Yes. I read that a couple of weeks ago. I think ago. John's told us that before. Mm. 
And the yellow beard, there was a look of recognition. Yeah. But that was recognising the film rather than that Bowie was in it. The song was Breaking Free, which was a duet, and he provided Zach Efron's half of the duet. Why? That's Why would bullshit. he do that? <laughs> <laughs> because Zach Efron couldn't hit the notes. It's, it's a die-hard high that... school musical fan, Go Wildcats. I refuse to believe it. Was, uh, it. It's not that, that high. That's a ballad, yeah, but they couldn't, his, his vocal range wasn't right for it, so they got um, Bowie to overdub it. But Bowie doesn't have a massively high, like a freakishly high. Yeah. No, not high notes, just the notes, he was just out of tune. He was just flat on it, so they got Bowie to do some of it. I've also heard Zac Efron in lots of other songs and musicals, and he has quite the range. It may be that David Bowie's does his voice for old. Have you heard him singing the last two years? <laughs> well, that's right. Stick with it, John. Yeah. You'll convince us eventually, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, I think we're all there. I think we think it's that one, don't <laughs> yeah. we? Yep. Yeah, probably. You are all wrong. What? No, you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> So you will be pleased to know, having tallied up the film buffs or film bluffs this week, I have decided that Dan is the winner. Hooray. So as your award, Dan, you get to delve into my sack of fun. <laughs> I'll pass your sack of fun over. Hazel's I have already delved once. You have already delved once, yes. What do you, uh, Hazel is opening John's sex bag. Oh, it's heavy. Sexes, C-E-X, computer exchange. <laughs> it's fully loaded. <laughs> No looking, Dan. Oh, by sheer coincidence, <laughs> I picked out Nicolas Cage's Next in 2007. Oh, would you like to pick one that you haven't already had? No. <laughs> I picked one. So no, do you want to tell us about that one? I would Using love to tell you. Using your psychic power? Yes. Uh, well, as it so happens, I can see 91 minutes into the future, especially when it comes to Nicolas Cage movies, so I can tell you already what happens in this film, which I watched last night. I must wait till one o'clock in the morning watching that. Shh. Despite only picking it out of the sack just now. This is amazing. This is a time travel. It's a, as mysterious a power as Nicolas Cage's power mm-hmm. in the film Next, where he can see up to two minutes in the future, <laughs> but only if the future involves him or others who have entered his consciousness, whatever that means, except in the instance of it involving Jessica Beale, in which case he can see much further ahead into the future, but at non-specific points. How do they explain this in the context of the film? They do not. They do not. This is, this is <laughs> of your interpretation of it. He doesn't know how it works. He's had it since he was born. There's a little oblique reference to him being taken by the government and subjected to 36 hours of non-stop what's on the other side of this card tests, mm. which he reveals to Julianne Moore, who's trying to get him to use his ability to see two minutes into his own future, but nobody else's, to predict exactly when a nuclear bomb is going to go off in Los Angeles. But he's only so got two minutes notice. It. That is correct. So uh, he can tell you a nuclear bomb's going to go off, but only two minutes before it actually does. That's no use whatsoever. So you would think. And I have no, I have, <laughs> I have no way around that. That seems to be her plan. She sits him in front of a TV to watch the news, because when the bomb detonates, it's going to be on the news. Mm. So as soon as it's on the news, he can tell her exactly where it's detonated. And they've got two minutes to stop it. <laughs> correct. And it could be anywhere in Los Angeles. Well, it could theoretically be anywhere, but they appear to just be lugging it around in a van for most of the film. <laughs> I tell a lie, they don't actually find the nukes at the end of the film. They just forget about them. Can I spoil the end of the film for you? Yes. So about halfway through, he and Jessica Beale get together with the fantastic setup of, that was incredible. What was this? 
and then they kiss and have sex. Julian Moore and <gasps> Nicolas Cage. No, uh, Jessica Biel. And the fact that he says that was incredible before they've even kissed means that the whole thing must last less than two minutes <laughs> before they're curled up in bed so with was, each other in the afterglow. So it wasn't that incredible. It couldn't have been. Everything from that point on, and there's an hour of the film, I think, that takes place after this with lots of huge action set pieces. Jessica Beale gets kidnapped. He sees her get blown up. And they go through all of this. He sees multiple parallel futures to stop all of the FBI people being blown up in a kind of, don't go that way. I got blown up that way. He dies dozens of times, finding out which ways to go. He sees himself die. He sees himself Rather die. Rather than he does it in Rewind's time or anything. Yes, but he must experience the dying, because that is the future that happens. His explanation is, the future is set until it isn't, <laughs> or something. He can see two minutes into the future, but he can't change the future by seeing those two minutes into the future. The fact of seeing the future changes the future. Right. So he can't change it. So he, he can change it. Yeah. Right. Yes. Anyway, the nuke goes off, everybody dies. Cut to him and Jessica Beale in bed an hour previously, and he's foreseen the whole second half of the film, including multiple parallel futures. Because she's involved. Presumably. Right. And then agrees to go and help Julianne Moore. The end. So you never find out whether they yeah. get rid of the nukes or anything. Daily Express calls it a must-see movie. That's one way to put it. <laughs> Must see it to believe how bad it is. Probably. Yes. It's not a good film, but it's not bad enough to be entertainingly bad. Ah. Uh, yeah, I watched the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Didn't feel the need to look at or do anything else. But a lot of it was puzzling over exactly how this power works and how useful it could be. You were saying earlier it takes about 100 attempts to get Jessica Biel to like him. Yeah, there's a sequence where he tries various ways of chatting up Jessica Biel and... It's quite Groundhog Day-ish, in a not good way. The only one that ends up working is him getting punched in the face by her ex-boyfriend. And then she tends to him and cleans him up. And Mm. it's basically, if she says no the first 99 times you try, the 100th time she might say yes and then you're in. So this is basically Nicolas Cage's sexual harassment film. Yeah, she's got no free will and no choice in the matter. He keeps trying different ways of being a pickup artist Mm. to her. Until he finds the one where she says, yes, it's like Doctor Strange and his 14 million and six so, I mean, would, different would you, futures. But time's still going forward. I, I have so many problems with no, this. It's- <laughs> he sees into the future, but he's actually still in the present. So it's just there and he's just seeing lots of different alternative futures like Doctor Strange. Yeah, so he just keeps going until he finds the one where she Would says yes. Would you say yes. that's a problem about Groundhog Day? No, but well, he's going to take him a couple of seconds to think of these trap lines. And while he's thinking of it, he's going, well, that doesn't work. I'll think of another one. That's going to take him five seconds. If he does that a hundred times, 500 seconds have gone. She's left the bar. Yeah. <laughs> Not as good as... I can't, I, can't really, I, can't, I can't explain that to you. My favourite line in the film was an exchange with Julianne Moore and the FBI trying to convince him to come peacefully with them. And he walks to the edge of a cliff and she goes, don't do it. To which he replies, I already have. And jumps Ooh. off the cliff. But that was part of the whole thing that didn't happen. The thing is, Nicolas Cage has a tax bill. Jessica Biel has no career. I'm sad that Julia Moore. What's her rationale for making this film? I don't know. She has no character. Her entire character is, I must find Nicolas Cage. When you sign up for a movie, you don't know whether it's going to be good or not. There are loads of examples of people who missed being in what would have been the fantastic career-defining movie for them, and they didn't choose it for one reason or another. And obviously vice versa, there's plenty of occasions where people have ended up in a movie they just wish they were dead mm-hmm. in. When you get it at the script stage, you just can't be sure how all the other bits yeah. all fit together. 
I'm just looking at the back of this and I'm seeing and Peter Falk is Columbo in this movie. Very briefly, yes. He's yeah. Nicolas Cage's friend at the start and they play pool until Julianne Moore arrives and tries to convince Cage to join her, except she doesn't because he's seen that whole conversation and leaves before she arrives or something. That's his entire role in the film. Yeah, he doesn't turn up mm-hmm. again after that. Bizarre. Because he's credited as and Peter Falk. Yeah. Suggesting some importance to the script. Yeah. No. Often the sort of thing that you're describing is when the movie changed and a part was taken out. That's quite often where someone seems to be in a role that they didn't fit. Doesn't go anywhere. So how many cages out of ten? I would give it... Oh, I already know. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, you do. Uh, I would give it three cages out of ten. It's a Philip K. Dick adaptation. Oh, really? According to the opening credits. And it's probably not the worst film Nicolas Cage has ever done. Which one's that? I don't know. Left Behind. I will tell you about the worst Nick Cage film when we get to our recommendations. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so now's part of the show where we do some recommendations of things that we've been watching or reading lately. Dan, what have you been up to? Uh, I have got another addition to the Nerdfest bookshelf for you. It's one of the latest in a series of comic books that tell the story following the events of the film Serenity. So it's in the Firefly verse and this one is called No Power in the Verse. I really, really like this one because it got the characters' voices absolutely right. You can hear every word as if the actors were saying it. You could imagine it being episodes of Firefly because of just how well they've got the tone, they've got the language Mm. absolutely spot on. The story isn't massively compelling, but it's always nice to revisit those characters. And because they got them so right, it's really readable, really nice just to revisit that world. And what was nice about the hardcover edition of the book is it's got an extra little mini comic, which retells the story of how the crew got together in the style of a fairy tale, like a bedtime story. Mm. Do you mind Firefly comic spoilers subsequent to the events of the film? No, I'd like to hear them. Wash and Zoe have a daughter in these comics. So Zoe must have been in the very early stages of pregnancy when Wash died. Mm. So this is a bedtime story told to her by River, and it's called The Warrior and the Wind. It's about how her mum and her dad got together. And if you're still not over Wash, like I am not, is a really nice sort of touching story of their tale and how they got together told in this nice, fanciful way. Is Josh Whedon involved in this in any way? I don't think he was credited in this particular edition, but I think he has been for some in the past. So the first in the series of, I don't know whether you call them comic books or graphic novels, I don't know quite where Depends the, the line is there. Or not. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it certainly has the spirit of him if he didn't oversee any of it. So this is an illustrated book rather than a novel. Yes. Like Big Damn Hero, which you yeah. mentioned, which was a novel. Yeah. I yeah. uh, haven't read that yet, but I think this actually came out a year or two ago. I think there are more. I'm not well versed in the world of comics, so it's hard to keep track of what order things come in and when they come out and whether you're supposed to buy them as individual things or wait for it to be released altogether. Mm-hmm. But as far as I'm aware, this is the most recent of the comics. Mm. So, yeah, no power in the verse. This past week or so, I watched Bird Box, which is a Netflix movie starring Sandra Bullock, based on a supposedly unfilmable 2014 novel. It follows a pregnant woman and a pair of children, which she calls just boy and girl, and cuts between two different sort of timelines. 
One's in the present day as they escape an unseen horror by piloting a boat blindfolded down a river, and the other is in the past, showing how the disaster struck. But Sandra Bullock's driving through town with her friend, and they start hearing of weird events around the world with reports of people going mad and killing themselves. Then all of a sudden it's here too, in the streets, and we see people react to something only they see, often a dead friend or relative, somehow causing them to end their own lives. A friend overturns the car, someone from a neighbouring house attempts to rescue her from the middle of the road, and herself killed quite graphically in front of us, and it just chaos ensues around. It's reminiscent of, is it World War Z, where... Zed. Zed. Well, it's American, so... <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> where there's a scene where he's like with his family in the car and you just know that there's something approaching and you can just feel it coming. And yes, yeah. that's the yeah. bit they filmed yeah. in Glasgow, I think. Right. Yeah. It, it sort of has a bit of that feel in that you can feel the thing starting to build and chaos build up around them. Mm-hmm. That's one of the better parts in the film. It's a very good trick. I like it, the way that he's in uh, Independence Day as well, where you see the reactions of people who can see the spaceship, but mm-hmm. we can't yet. You mm-hmm. can see yeah. the shadow mm-hmm. coming over their house and then looking up with this expression of shock. Yeah. So the viewers are kind of doing the work in kind of building mm-hmm. up in their imagination of what it can possibly look like. Which There's is a better. similar trick in Infinity War as well, where they're in Doctor Strange's place and they can just hear stuff happening out in the street mm-hmm. and yeah. chaos starting to... Yeah, it's a great yeah. My favourite moment like that is not quite the same thing, but in Jurassic Park, where you see Laura Dern's face before you see the dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. she takes off her sunglasses. Yeah. Oh, is that Sam Neill takes off his sunglasses? Yes. Uh, yeah. Laura Dern kind of looks up. Yeah. yeah. The best moment in all films. <laughs> so, anyway, she ends up back in the house they came from, held up with seven or eight other people, including Joel Malkovich. And it becomes apparent that it's something people see that drives them mad. So they keep all the doors and windows covered or wear a blindfold if you go outside so that you never see this thing that's going to drive you crazy. And then, of course, the food runs out and they need to think, okay, what we're going to do, how we're going to get supplies, how do we get outside to get these things? Is there any safe way of doing it? We never see the monsters. There's just some swirling wind or the occasional shadow. And we never discover where the creatures come from or how it all began. I assume this stuff was all that way in the book. I don't think the book will have explained it either. That is correct. So you've read the book, have you, Dan? I have. Yeah. Yes. Have you seen the film? I have. Okay, I'm good. I'm one of the just over 45 million people who've watched it on Netflix in its first seven days. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually released their viewing figures for it because yeah. it's the best opening week of any film they've oh, right. ever had. They uh-huh. actually officially did that? Yeah. That's a, that's a surprise for Netflix. Yeah. But yeah, I guess 45 million views mm-hmm. for one film, you'd have to do really well in the cinema to that's equal that. That's like 450 million. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good going. Yeah. So they must be proud. Yeah, great. Um, I mean, for me, I thought A Quiet Place was one of the best films this past year. And it it can't really hope to be at that level. But then most films aren't. It certainly shares some DNA with it, with the sort of vision gimmick instead of the hearing. It's not up to that level, but it is worth watching. I think it's one of these things, if you go in with medium expectations, you'll you'll think it's great. (laughs) So what, what did you think, Dan? I really enjoyed it. I thought the first hour when you're getting these moments where stuff is happening and nobody's got any idea what's going on. I really like all those tense moments that we've just mentioned. It lost me a little bit in the second half, which was a different experience to reading the book. The last third or so of the book, I'd read in just one constant motion, like unable to put it down. But the last third of the film, I was a little bit bored Whereas the early going of the book, I wasn't as into, but I really liked the first act of the film. Am I right that the conceit of the last third of the book is that she's blindfolded, but it's told 
from her point of view, so you don't know what's happening. Yeah, the whole thing is told from her perspective. Yeah. So whenever she's blindfolded, you are as well. And I think that's why people must have thought it was unfilmable, Mm. because Mm -hmm. film is a visual medium. Mm -hmm. And they got around that really well, I thought. Well, they only had one or two shots from under her blindfold. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm surprised, given what you say, that they didn't have a like, sustained four-minute sequence or something like that, all yeah. told that way. So I think that's probably the big advantage of the book, is that you've got to use your imagination in the same way that they have got to imagine what mm. the world beyond their blindfold looks like. You don't get the advantage of seeing the world around them, yeah. whereas in the film, you've got to have that. So I think it naturally loses a bit there, but it gives you the opportunity to build a world that you don't get in the book. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, certainly in the first half of the film, they do that really well. And the bird box, if anyone wondered what it was for, the birds react to the presence of the creatures. and they're Like canaries down a coal mine. Yes, basically. Which, again, helps create tension because you Mm -hmm. know that there's this scary thing is is near, even though you can't see it. How many blindfolds out of ten? I'll give it eight unnamed horrors out of ten. And how many would you give it? I would go with seven Malkoviches out of ten. Okay. That's almost a whole binge on Malkovich. I know. Malkovich, Malkovich. That film came out 20 years ago, nearly. And every time I hear someone say John Malkovich, I have a disability to go, Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. <laughs> I would like to recommend a TV series that I've just gone into. It's been out for about a year and a half, but the second series is just about to air. And it's on Amazon Prime, and it's called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Has anyone else seen it? No. I'm, I'm going to hear you out on this one, but the trailer made me want to pull my teeth out. Okay. Uh, I think this might not be one for hear, me. Hear me out. <laughs> okay. Amy watches it. I've not got around to it yet, but she really likes it. So yeah. It was created by Amy Sherman Palladino, and it stars Rachel Brosnahan, who I recognise from House of Cards. She was the chief of staff's bit on the side in the first couple of seasons. She plays a housewife in 1950s New York, and then she discovers that she has a knack for stand-up comedy. Her husband is trying to be a stand-up comic, but as it turns out, she actually writes a few of his jokes, um, and he stole the rest from another comedian. He tanks one night, and then that same night he tells Miriam that he's leaving her because he's been having an affair with his secretary. She gets very, very drunk and winds up back on stage at the comedy gig and goes down an absolute storm. She's mesmerising on stage and then ultimately gets arrested for stripping on stage. Um, <laughs> it's very, very smart. It's, it's very, very warm. It's very funny. But it's also a quite contemporary feeling programme, even though it's set in the 50s, because it's about how women who put maybe their marriage before themselves are sacrificing their potential. This is my view. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. this is everybody's view. And it kind of shines a light on women who might be feeling institutionally oppressed because of how society was at that time. If the shit hits the fan and they are put in a situation where they have to be out on their own, actually they can cope extremely well. And she is shown to be an exceptionally capable, funny, wonderfully warm woman. And it was her husband who was holding her back all along. And it's also a very interesting look into the 1950s male psyche, because leaving your wife for your secretary is a cliche, and that's why it's there. So it kind of looks at like cliches of that moment in time mm. and knocks them on the head. So it's, um, it is a comedy, but it's also quite a contemporary look at life now. 
So it's um, it's quite an empowering watch from my point of view. Does it draw from lots of sources or is it just completely fictional? As far as I know, it's completely fictional, but um, uh, I could be wrong on that. Yeah, because mm. Joan Rivers will have been doing stand-up around that time. Would she? Maybe a little bit later a little than bit that, later. yeah. yeah. People like Lucille Ball and... Phyllis Diller and... Phyllis yeah. Diller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was about the first time you'd probably get like female stand-ups of that, yeah. that type. Mm. Well worth a watch. So that actually, that sounds quite good. Um, it's a shame it's got a terrible trailer. What was it about the trailer that you didn't like? It just looked very twee. That would be the trailer for season one, presumably. Mm. I think there's a trailer doing the rounds at the moment. That's for season like a, two. A, t- a TV spot. Yeah, it's anything but twee. It knocks a lot of conventions on their heads. Every single male in this TV programme is a beat behind. So it's, it's obviously a fictional programme. <laughs> <laughs> it's obviously written by a woman. <laughs> so, yeah, because uh, another of my friends recommended it. Male or female? Female. So I've had uh, a female friend. Are they trying to tell you something? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, one of my female friends recommended it. And now one of my female acquaintances has as well. Um, (laughs) You're an acquaintance. (laughs) Wow. That's a step up. What about your secretary? (laughs) She, um, (laughs) my secretary about my Christmas presents this year. That's how bad I am. (laughs) Genuinely. No, it's not, it's not a sexist thing. It's just, I can't rap. Well, I've we've, heard we've, you rap. We've heard you rap on stage. We know that. <laughs> Actually, no. So no, my secretary didn't. My uh, my female colleague did. My secretary offered, but then she went off. What, she, she's like, I'm not doing your not fucking doing Christmas rapping. I quit. Fuck off, farming. <laughs> Do your own rapping. And she's now selling out the stand. She is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With my jokes. <laughs> I know some female comedians and they still get treated terribly today compared to male comedians. Yeah, I think there's still some work to do. She says what at the time would have been incredibly contentious things on stage about how maybe she wasn't meant to be a mother. She doesn't actually like it. And at the time that would have obviously gone down incredibly badly because that's all women were supposed to be. Whereas now I think that stigma has pretty much gone away. But there's still a feeling about maybe women in comedy. Mm. There's still a stigma about women not being as funny as men. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure why. I would very much recommend everyone kind of giving it a go because it is a. It's do you know what? It's a wonderful looking 1950s New York as well. The sets and mm-hmm. the costumes are done incredibly well. Mm. And it's a, yeah, it's a it's a very very funny series. Give it a go. And yeah. from its name and from its sort of banners, which is I've seen a lot of times, but we never actually got to the stage of watching the trailer. I think the title as well. I think it's a. I don't think it's a great title. It's, it does sound twee, and yeah. um, the main character in what she's dressed as, which is a prim and proper housewife kind of get up. What the trailer obviously doesn't get across is that it flips those conventions on their yeah. head. Mm-hmm. Expect the unexpected. <laughs> okay, um, recommendations. Do you want a recommendation, or do you want a recommend don't? A recommendation. A recommendation. Hmm. How about both? Okay, uh, I, I, the recommendation, I think, all Figure of us... Figure we're both anyway. All of us, apart from Hazel, have seen this, I think. Uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, yep. which me and Peter saw last week, was it? Yeah. So this is the animated Spider-Man film from Sony. Uh, the cynical would say it's an attempt by Sony to keep a hold on the Spider-Man rights as much as they can. Now we've got Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is the alternate Spider-Man, which is Miles Morales, who is very well established in the comics. But I'm right in thinking that this is the first time we've seen him on screen. I think so. This is a African-American Spider-Man who has a different backstory, is much younger, 
is kind of a graffiti artist who is bitten by a spider and is learning about his powers. And in this particular version, we get lots of different Spider-Mans from different universes. So Peter Parker exists in this universe, but is killed very early on. And Miles Morales takes on the role of Spider-Man. I don't know the comics well enough to know if that's what happens in the comics or whether it's just an alternate universe. I don't think no, so. I think it, I think yeah. they maybe did it just to abandon some of your preconceptions for Spider-Man. Yeah. yeah, Spider-Man doesn't have to be standard heroic Peter Parker. Yeah. So we start off with some really funny nods to the film and other versions, particularly Spider-Man 3. So you've got the Spider-Man walk from Spider-Man 3, emo oh, Spider-Man. The emo sp- oh no. And the upside down yeah. kiss. <laughs> Yes, and it kind of begins with, one more time, I was bitten by a radioactive spice. It does a lot of nods to that. Peter Parker is killed, Miles Morales kind of takes on the Spider-Man role, and then due to some kingpin shenanigans, we get a clash of multiverses with different Spider-Men from alternative universes coming in. So we've got an alternate universe, Peter Parker, who's let himself go a little bit. We've got Spider-Ham, also known as Peter Porker, which is (laughs) an anthropomorphic pig. We've got Gwen Stacy as the female Spider-Man, Nicolas Cage, Spider-Man Noir, and uh, the Japanese Spider-Man, which is a Japanese girl with a robot suit controlled by a spider. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. she's got a psychic link to the spider, and the spider controls a giant robot. Yeah, of course. Obviously. They all exist in various comics going back a while, so none of them were made up for the film. There's a slightly weak villain story explaining how this has happened and how they need to get back there. But a lot of it's just interaction between all the different versions of Spider-Man and it's a lot of fun. It's really well told, it's funny, it's moving, great characters and it looks amazing. I've not seen anything like it on a cinema screen in a long time. It's kind of almost psychedelic and trippy. Mm. I assume it's CGI but it looks hand-drawn in places. I think I read somewhere that they'd kind of drawn over the frames and that yes. might only be for some of the characters. Like you could imagine, say, Noir looks like he's drawn over. Yeah. And you get a lot of the comic book conventions, so you get speech bubbles and... Uh, Little thought bubbles. Thought bubbles, yeah. Multiple panels at times. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was great, and it was nice to see a sort of different take on things. The only downside, sort of graphically, there was this weird sort of double image effect. John and I both thought they'd accidentally shown it in 3D mode, literally seeing double images of stuff. And after a while, we worked out it's stuff that's close to the camera. Instead of blurring it, they actually do two separate images. It's a choice, but given the history of that cinema, which has had a few problems now and then. Let's not name the cinema for being yeah. liable, but we've had some bad screening experiences yes. there, haven't we, in the yeah. past year? But the emotional stuff in the film works really well. The character designs are really, really good. Kingpin and Noir both look great. Yeah. They really look the parts. Maybe some of the action scenes nearer the beginning were less successful. It's hard to see the jeopardy of cartoon characters sometimes. And that it might be that, or it might be because it was a relatively low frame rate and quite dynamic action. Mm. A bit of it was a bit of a sort of visual blur at times. Was it meant to be shown in cinemas, or was it intended to be like streamed on Netflix first? It was always, I think it was always cinemas. Yeah. Right. It was announced at the same time as announcing Spider-Man joining the MCU. That was the big news, the thing everyone was interested in. So this almost sneaked through without anyone noticing. Mm-hmm. People knew it was coming, but I think the level of interest in it was pretty low. Once they started hearing reports and things, I think they showed about 40 minutes of it at Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. And that got a really great response. It's in a lot of people's film of the year, 2018. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I haven't seen it yet. I, I fully intend to. But do you think it's worthy of a place in the top 10? 
Definitely. If, if only for being something different and daring, and yeah. that's always a good thing. You know, even when a thing doesn't always 100% work, it's better to see a brave attempt mm. that's interesting and something different. This might sound a bit odd because it's so colourful. The closest thing I can think of visually was Sin City, yeah. in mm. terms of it actually looking like the films of comic books brought to life. So I think the more into comics you are, the more you love it, the more you can appreciate what it's doing. I really liked it, but like John and Peter, it had been hyped so much prior to me seeing it. as one Purely as, by other people who'd seen it and yeah, said how yeah. fantastic it was. Yeah, that I, I think my expectations were so very high mm. that as much as I really liked it, it couldn't possibly live up to mm. yeah. how good I'd been told it was. But really liked Spider-Gwen. She was great. Yeah, Went out and bought one of her comics straight afterwards <laughs> to find out more about who she was. Yeah, Really enjoyed the whole multiverse concept and would like to see more of that. Even mm. the possibility of Peter Parker from the MCU universe becoming part of it, if you could imagine all the cartoon spiders with a live-action Tom Holland <laughs> yeah, in amongst them. Yeah, it's Mary Poppins style, almost, yeah, whereas live-action on a cartoon background. Because with that multiverse, anything mm. could happen. Yeah. So it wouldn't be that out of place. And or maybe they could escape into the next Spider-Man movie. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. perhaps the third one. That would uh, be Yeah, Who Framed cool. Roger Rabbit style. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That would be great. Um, Just have a little sequence of that would be really good. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a sequel to this already in production, is that right? I think so, There's certainly a Gwen Stacy solo movie, again, in this universe, coming. There's a big hint for the next one in the end credits scene, which we won't spoil. But that's uh, one of the funniest post-credit scenes I've seen as well. Although I should point out, we... We saw it on on YouTube, (laughs) having left. Yeah. Because we thought, oh, it's been far too long. And they got onto like the third song. And you think, oh, once they hit the third song, they're not going to put anything on now. And of course they did. <laughs> How many different Spider-Mans from different universes out of ten? Nine, I think I'll I'm give it. I'm also going to go nine. I will go with nine as well. Nine radioactive spiders. Yeah. Or possibly one radioactive pig. Because I'm sure I read somewhere that Spider-Ham is actually a spider who was bitten by a pig. <laughs> right. I I'm really not sure how or why, but I'm sure I've read that. I feel like we're all hovering between an eight and a nine. Yeah. That'd be yeah, a low nine. Well, even though Evan said nine. Yes, <laughs> but we also nine. We also nine. We've been nine. Yeah. Um. Were he able to join us from the void, I'm sure Ian Mayer would tell us that we are wrong and it should be eleven. Yes, Ian, <laughs> who Ian, who is our comic book expert, he loved it, didn't he? he was really. Yeah, it was his best comic book film of the year, and one of his, I think, possibly his best film of the year. Yeah, mm-hmm. as well. With that and Black Panther and Infinity War, 2018 was quite a good superhero year. As long mm. as we don't mention Venom. Oh yeah, <laughs> Venom. So having suffered through Jurassic World, Venom's next on my list of things I think I should kind of watch just to find out if it's as bad as it's supposed to be. I nearly watched it uh, last night or the night before. But she didn't. But I didn't know. Wiser heads prevailed. And I, instead Is that I, Louisa's wiser head? Yeah, instead I watched my Recommendy Don't. Okay. <laughs> it's Nick Cage time, guys. Oh. You just had Nick Cage with yes. Spider-Man Noir. Yes, I had good Nick Cage. I've had Nick Cage on yours as well. Yeah. I did do a little a little screen noise when Nick Cage's voice appeared in Spider-Man. How did that go? Like a little hamster next to me. I watched a film by mistake, not realising what film I was watching. I like how you watched the whole thing by mistake. Yeah. What I've noticed in my voyages to the depths of Nick Cage's straight-to-DVD career, you get what I call a cage switcheroo. 
<laughs> where the DVD case and description do not describe the film in any way whatsoever. The best example of this is a film called The Runner, where the DVD cover sells as a big action thriller, and you've got a picture of Nick Cage running away from an explosion. You're talking about another Nick Cage film. Another now. Nick Cage, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, 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 left. the front cover of The Runner shows Nick Cage running away from an exploding oil rig with a big thing about pulse racing thriller. And the film is actually about Nick Cage as a small town lawyer trying to get justice for the victims of a BP oil disaster. <laughs> right. Comedy gold. <laughs> yeah, so I believe that there might be an exploding oil rig in the first scene from some stock footage. And then the rest of it's this awful, really cloying drama. There's no relation to the cover whatsoever. I loved it. I was so happy. Mm -hmm. The one that I watched was Left Behind. Nick Cage is a pilot. I just think of buttocks every time you... Uh, my left behind. The title this one. <laughs> so uh, Nick Cage, who was paid $3 million for this film... Almost enough to buy another dinosaur skull. Or pay the tax on the last one. <laughs> for um, 10 days' work? 10 days' work, said. I believe. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Nick Cage is a pilot. Suddenly, half the people on the plane disappear. And he's got to land the plane. Then it should be easier. It should be, it should be easier because yeah, he's a pilot. You would have thought it was that big. A, you know, that, that was the first suspicion. Hang on, he's a pilot. He's just got to land a plane. But even so, the, his co-pilot is gone. His co-pilot's gone. But then on the radio thing, half the people on the planet have disappeared. How exciting is that? Millions of people have just disappeared. Have you secretly found a preview of Endgame? Yes, I, I thought. I thought this sounded really exciting. But this is about half an hour away when half the people disappear. And I'm watching the film and they're all in the airport beforehand. And for some reason, sort of every five minutes or so, the film just grinds to a halt where they have a talk about God and whether there's an interventionist God and whether we have control of our destiny or whether God can save us. And if God is real, then how comes there suffering in the world and so on and so on. And this just happens constantly. Lee Thompson from Back to the Future is a born-again Christian who everyone thinks is a bit crazy. So when this finger click happens, half the people disappear. It's only the fucking rapture, isn't it, mate? It's the rapture. Um, so there's, a, there's like somebody who is of an indeterminate Middle Eastern origin who isn't a Christian who's still there because he's not been raptured. There's a yeah. guy who's into gambling who's not there. Nick Cage was potentially having an affair, so he's not been raptured. Potentially. He was looking at a stewardess in a bit of a funny way, and apparently that's enough. It bought a U2 tickets. <laughs> it, it, it bought They're a really <laughs> strict for this rapture. Yeah, apparently so. I mean, um, his daughter didn't go up to heaven because she dared to question why God didn't intervene in a flood. And there's a bit where, like, they've got and they've left all the piles of clothing, and he's looking at them, and there's, like, the, the little fish symbol on a necklace. And then another one's got, like, a little crucifix. He goes, my God, I realise what's happening. <laughs> and all the babies have disappeared because they've not sinned, and all the children have disappeared. So it doesn't subscribe to the original sin notion. No. Because any pre-baptised babies would have been left behind as well. That's a fair point, actually. Mm. They didn't think this would food, did they? No. And they land the plane eventually. Oh, was he on the plane the whole time? Yeah. They land the plane and they look and they go, what now? And then it goes to the credits and that's the end of the film. So some research found out that this film was actually created and funded by this religious church group. Oh, no. Who are... Uh, What's the name of the people that believe in the rapture? Mad. Mad. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a film based on the first of 16 books about what happens in the end of days. And the conclusion of this film is that basically God has taken everybody who is worthwhile up to heaven. The sinners are left on earth and will have to battle for their souls. Sold on the cover as an exciting action film where people have mysteriously disappeared and what you actually get is a film that stops 
every 10 minutes whilst they give you a little lecture on why you should believe in this film and why you'll probably go to hell if you don't. So if they did all 16 books as different films and Nick Cage appeared across all of them, could it be the NCU for the Nick Cage universe? (laughs) Apparently this is the second time they've made this as a film. So they did it in the 90s and they got to book four. This was a reboot and it's got 0% or 1% on Rotten Tomatoes. And they did a crowdfunder to make the sequel and a crowdfunder petered out at $98,000. And that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough, no. (laughs) That'll buy you three days of Cage. I'll buy you half an hour of Nick Cage. I'm going to start a Patreon up. If anyone who listens to this podcast donates $10, I could hire him to be in my film for half a day. How great would that be? What would your film be about? Uh, Nick Cage is on a plane. (laughs) Uh, No one disappears. And he just... Conair. Yeah, it's Conair. <laughs> <laughs> so the moral of the story is, if you want to watch a Nick Cage film, don't look at the DVD cover, read a review before you do it. Right. And will you be following that advice? Nope. <laughs> John, would you like to wrap it up, since you're so good at wrapping? Yo, mother. <laughs> It's John here, bringing the show to an end. We had some fun, it took some bends, and now we're gonna go, 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 go. Break it down, Dad. No. <laughs> A wise choice. So that brings us to the end of another Nerdfest episode. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Check us out on social media at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. Listen out for a post-credit sequence where Peter will come up with something genius as normal. But in the meantime, until the next episode you've been listening to... Dan Watkins. Peter Johnson. Literally the only person that didn't get raptured. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> and I'm Hazel Burton. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 You're flying a plane. Suddenly, half the passengers disappear like Thanos has snapped his finger. Didn't you recommend this on the last podcast? So I think no, I, think I was on a. I tweeted it's it and said we should watch blurring this. Blurring into one. Yeah. <laughs> I think in real life, I, I said I'm going to watch this Nick Cage film. It sounds like a sequel to Infinity War. Oh, oh, um, I, I remember. This is the yeah. messenger thread from. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, perhaps you have the ability to see two minutes into the future of this podcast, and you know what John's <laughs> yeah. about Didn't to you do. Describe this on the last one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I recommend it on the next one. Okay, continue. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Nick Cage is a pilot. Suddenly, half the people on the plane disappear. Or would you like to wrap it up? To half the people disappear. To half the people disappear. It's only the fucking rapture, isn't it, mate? It's the rapture. And he's got to land the plane. It's all blurring. <laughs>